please stand for the reading of God's word. Today we're going to be reading in Mark 2, 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. That's going to be on page 489 of the Blue Bibles in the seat back pocket in front of you. And um, if you need a Bible, feel free to take one. All right. Hear the word of the Lord. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Thus says God's word. Thank you, Danae. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gospel. The gospel shows us clearly that you have, uh, God, become for us our rest through Jesus. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that you have declared of yourself, Jesus, that you are the Lord of the Sabbath. And we thank you, Lord. God, we thank you that that our relationship to you is not governed by tedious rule-keeping, but by grace and rest that is found in belief and repentance. So we thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for lifting the burden off of our shoulders and giving us Blessed rest for our souls. So, Lord, I thank you for that. Lord, I I just pray for every heart to hear your word with spiritual ears today. I pray for my stammering tongue, Lord, to be able to communicate these truths in a way that brings honor to you. And, Lord, I pray that all of us would have a, a, a greater, more clear, a bigger picture of who you are and the and the the strength and the power of your great name and the the joy that accompanies your kingdom in Jesus name we pray amen you can be seated so we've been um, in the series on mark and mark 2 um really has a theme that goes through it that uh the really it sets the stage for something that we see throughout the rest of Jesus's ministry and that theme is um, that there's a conflict, and, and this, this kind of shows us the beginning of this conflict. There's a conflict that Jesus has with the Jewish ruling authorities. These were not, you know, Jesus, you know, they didn't get along. Um, Jesus, of course, was not outwardly hostile to them, but, but they questioned everything that he did. And Matthew, Mark 2 is just a story, one right after the other, of, of this conflict, because Jesus did not fit the bill of what the religious experts of, of Israel thought that a leader or a teacher should be. It begins like this in, in Mark chapter 2. Jesus comes to a man who's paralyzed, needs healing, or they actually bring the man to him, needs healing. And Jesus begins, before he ever mentions his healing, he says, Son, your sins are forgiving you. Well, those that are listening, the religious leaders, just have a fit about that um, because they're, they're, they insist that only God can forgive sins. And let me tell you, we talked about this when we went over that. 
Their assessment was absolutely right. Only God can forgive sins. What was Jesus saying? Saying, I am God. He's trying to, to make that very clear to the people that are watching. Next, Jesus ups the ante. He goes and finds a tax collector, a, a person whose occupation made him the most despised person in the in Judea at the time. And Jesus calls that man, a man named Levi, who we also know as Matthew, he called him to be his disciple. And And worse than that, afterwards, Jesus attends a party that is just... Filled with tax collectors and people deemed by the religious, you know, uh, you know, kind of hoi polloi to be the, the outcasts of society, sinners. And the Pharisees make an assumption that many of us could also be guilty of making. And they say a holy man would never keep such company. But it doesn't end there. Next, the Pharisees actually chastise Jesus and his disciples because they don't ritualistically fast like Jesus or like the Pharisees do. But Jesus lets them know in a beautiful way that the arrival of the kingdom of God that he represents is not a time for fasting. It's a time for feasting. The time for fasting will come later, he tells them. So in verse 23 of chapter 2, battle lines are drawn on one of the Pharisees' favorite fields of battle. And that that field of battle is the concept and the commandments concerning the the observance by faithful Jews of the Sabbath day. Now, to understand what's happening, you can just read through the text, and you might miss something historically. To understand what's happening, you need to know more about who these Pharisees were. Modern Bible readers, like you and I, tend to assume that the Pharisees were just your run-of-the-mill, legalistic, holier-than-thou types that we have in many churches today. Probably there's at least a few in every church today. But there's much more to the place of the Pharisees in history than just is on the surface of the page. See, the Pharisees didn't begin their existence as a, as a religious and political force in Israel as dour-faced religious killjoys. That's not how they began. They, they actually began as men who were serious about obedience to God's law and his righteousness when, when it seems like the whole nation had abandoned those things, the, the, the import of God's law and, and a serious heart towards it. But over time, their original intent had become corrupted. So here's how they, they emerged. After their exile from Babylon, uh, in Babylon rather, the, the, the Jews returned home after 70 years in Babylon and everything that they had culturally, religiously, politically, everything was completely different. They had no king. The temple where they, which was the center of Jewish life, the center of their worship was completely destroyed. The priesthood was barely functioning, and the people had, had, in order to raise crops and raise families, had completely abandoned the strict observance of the laws. Now, in response to this, during this time, or during the time of the Greek Empire's rule over Judea, a conservative sect emerged that emphasized uh, primarily God's promise at Mount Sinai that his people, not just a select few, but that his people would be a nation of priests. And they asserted responsibility to study and to debate and to teach the law of God to God's people. The Pharisees, you know, sometimes we look at them as bad guys in the New Testament. Actually, everybody in Jesus' day highly respected the Pharisees because they represented the ability of common people who couldn't make, you know, uh, multiple journeys to the temple. They represented the, the, the feeding of God's word to the common man. So they were called Pharisees because it comes from a root word, which means one who is separated. So they definitely saw themselves as distinct from others. They were committed to rejecting the ways of the nations who had occupied them, starting with 
the Medes and the Persians to the Greeks to the Romans. And so it was at this time, we've talked about this before, that synagogues popped up. The, the, you know, you don't find synagogues in the Old Testament, but it, during this time, synagogues popped up, and they became a place of teaching in individual communities. Um, and this is where you found scribes and Pharisees teaching the law, interpreting the law, debating the law for the common Jewish person. Now, I said all that because I want you to see this. This is really important. The intention of the Pharisees as a sect was noble. What was their goal? They wanted to call people back to God's commands. They were an opposing force to another sect called the Sadducees. The Sadducees, if the, if the, uh, if the Pharisees represented the conservative, more based in scripture guys, the Sadducees were liberal and they, they questioned everything. They embraced Greek philosophy and culture and they, they rejected aspects of Jewish belief like the resurrection of the dead. Yet in the Pharisees' zeal for holiness, you know, they really wanted to bring reformation and correct everything in Israel. In in their zeal for holiness, they added things to the law that God never intended to be there. Why would they do that? See, they thought if the law said, don't go one mile, and they altered it to say don't go two miles all they were doing were protecting you from getting anywhere close to violating god's law makes sense but it doesn't work and so by doing this and 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 adding and tweaking and and fine-tuning in their minds god's law they completely forgot the purpose of god's law what do you suppose that is The law was given, Paul tells us, to bring people to God and to help them and, and to allow them to understand him better. You can't look at the law of God in the books of Moses and, and walk away and not understand that God is a holy God, that God is nothing like you and me. Amen. That God is, is superior in every way. And so, Their heart might have been good, but their method was dramatically flawed. Now, in regard to the Sabbath, the Sabbath day, these additions that the the Pharisees kept tacking on to the written word, the law of God, became absolutely burdensome. Let me give you a quick example. According to R.C. Sproul in his commentary on Mark, a Sabbath day's journey, you may remember reading that term in the scriptures, in the story of the of the uh, walk to Emmaus, but um, the, a Sabbath day's journey was calculated by the Pharisees to be exactly 1,999 paces. Exactly. So, if you took that 2,000th step, you were a lawbreaker. You had violated the Sabbath. And, and here's the downside. Nobody was wearing a Fitbit back then. No one had an Apple Watch to keep up with their steps. So you, you had to be really meticulous. And think, Can you imagine that if you were a Jew living 2,000 years ago and, and having to think about every step you took and calculate it? Man, I would just stay in bed all day which just, just to make sure I didn't break the law. See, the Sabbath, so when we come to the text that Danae read us, the Sabbath is the setting for this fourth rumble in the book of Mark chapter 2 between Jesus and the Pharisees. So here's the story. Jesus' disciples are hungry. And so they're passing through a grain field. And as they do, they pluck the heads of the grain. Matthew tells us they rub them in their hands and they eat those, those heads of grain to satisfy their hungry. Now, now, their hunger. Now think about this, how small of a thing this is it. This is like you having walked miles and being exhausted, covered in sweat. And you come to my house and I say, and you say, I am starving. And I say, great. Here's a handful of sunflower seeds. You know, this is basically their big crime. This is what they were doing. But when they see this, when, when they're satisfying their hunger by, by eating these heads of grain, the Pharisees immediately throw a penalty flag, they complain, they, they cry out, Look! Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, i got to be honest with you, when I first began engaging with Scripture when I was about 16 or 17 years old, I read this and it bothered me. 
See, it bothered me because the church that I was at taught me, rightfully, about the sinlessness, the perfection of Jesus. And I thought, well, why would Jesus let them break the law? It's a small law, you know, it seems like. It's not a big deal to grain from a grain field. Why would Jesus authorize that? Why would he stand idly by while his disciples violated the law of Moses, which in fact was the law of God? Well, here's the good news. In truth, those disciples did no such thing. They did not violate the law of Moses. They didn't violate the law of God. The Old Testament law actually made provision for exactly what they were doing at that moment. Let me prove it to you. Leviticus 23, verse 22 says, and this is speaking to farmers and people who plant fields agriculturally. It says, and when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Now, so you read that scripture. Let me tell you something. Let me kind of cut to the chase here. The disciples definitely qualified as both the poor and the sojourner. Think about it. The disciples had left everything to follow Christ. They'd left jobs. They'd left family. They'd left homes. They left everything to follow him. So they were poor. They traveled the countryside with Jesus on foot for the three years of his ministry. They were sojourners. And this provision in the law was there to ensure that needy travelers didn't go hungry. That they couldn't be denied the sustenance they needed to to survive. And here's the good part. We just read it all together. Did anyone in this room see any provision that stated except on the Sabbath day? Did y'all see that? I didn't see it. So what's all this deal? Why are your disciples doing what is unlawful? Well, see, here's the deal. So the Sabbath, and we teach this at Northridge Life, is a big deal. But the Pharisees were so afraid that people who were corrupted by their greed would go out ignoring God's law and do all kinds of work and therefore neglect God's commandment on the Sabbath. And so what they did, they said, well, we can't have that. So what we've got to do is we've got to expand the boundaries of this commandment and insist that law-abiding Jews do nothing that we deem, that's the important part, that we deem is work. Now it's law. It wasn't written by the finger of God like the Ten Commandments were, but is written by frail, sinful wicked men, and yet it's now law. Let's read the original law together. Exodus 20.10 says, The seventh day is a Sabbath. This is the Lord speaking. This is coming straight from the mouth of God. The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Is there anything unclear about that? No. No. Y'all are scared because you're probably planning on doing some little work this afternoon. There's nothing unclear. Seventh day is a Sabbath. On the Sabbath, no working. But see, what happened was the Pharisees, in their zeal for national righteousness, expanded the weight of this command so that, I'm serious about this, you couldn't even untie a knot. Or take a lamp from one room in your house to the other room in an age that didn't have electricity. You couldn't even do that or you'd be guilty of violating the Sabbath. And under the censure of the Pharisees. So Jesus and the disciples didn't actually violate any law that God had given their crime in the eyes of the Pharisees is that they trespassed the Pharisees' interpretation of the law. And let me tell you something. The spirit of the Pharisee is alive and well today. Amen? I mean, it's out there. It's out there, folks. Uh, there's a podcast I think some of you listen to. It's a great one I'd encourage you to listen to. It's called Cultish, and it's about exposing the uh, the you know cults and and how they 
they work with people. Great, great episodes on there. Well, they posted something on their Facebook page today from a, a church in, um, I, I can't remember where it was, but it was, it was a five page listing. I think there was 140 some odd rules on there for the people that are part of that ministry. Every single rule began with a four letter word, not a cuss word, D-O-N-T. So their whole basis, Jesus, now think about the irony of this. Christ, with the finger of God, carved out ten commandments for his people. This church said, eh, we can do better than that. Let's add 130 to the, to the list of the ten. And it was, it was things like, do not wear muscle shirts. I know there's a lot of sinners in this room right now. It's like, don't ever watch a movie. Now, I don't know who Jane is, but it said, unless Jane approves. So they, their Pharisee actually has a name at their church. So, um, it, uh, oh, this was a good one. Don't ever bring a visitor to church unless Jane approves. And there was filled with things like that. I'm telling you, the more things change, folks, the more they stay the same. Now, I don't know these people, I don't know this church, but I guarantee you that it started the same way Phariseeism started. That they were so afraid that they were going to get a little smudge of the world on them that they began to build protective laws to keep them away from any association with the world. And by the time you're done, you have a five-page document with 140 rules on it. This is not the gospel. This is not the truth. It's bondage. It's a burden. So the Pharisees were upset, not at the the trespassing of the law of God, but the trespassing of their interpretation of it. And their trespassing of the additional safeguards the Pharisees had invented to keep certain things like this from happening. See, the Ten Commandments absolutely place the observance of the Sabbath as one of God's top ten priorities. And that's important for us to remember because seriously, I'm not saying this to, you know, take a holier-than-thou thing, but most of us live in absolute disregard of the Sabbath commandment. We we just, you know, we do whatever we want to do on Sunday. We we get out of church. We don't think about God anymore. We we sometimes we do go straight to work and just wear ourselves out for the seventh day this week and we never pause to reflect and meditate. That's a sermon for another day. But but what I want you to understand is I'm not diminishing the actual law of the Sabbath. But Jesus, what I want you to see about the command of the Sabbath, Jesus would never violate it. He never violated any of God's laws. But what Jesus also wouldn't do was second guess the perfection of God's law and pollute it by adding to it or pollute it by letting others add to it. Interestingly enough, Jesus uses in this account... He uses the story from the Old Testament of an actual violation of an actual law to stop the accusations of the Pharisees. Only Jesus could do that. Only Jesus could. And in so doing, he teaches them about himself. So he reminds them of a story from 1 Samuel chapter 21. Here's the picture. David has just found out Saul, King Saul, is determined to kill him. And so David is on the run from King Saul and um, and on his way out of town into hiding, he stops by the tabernacle where the priest on duty gives him Goliath's sword. Goliath, the giant whom he had killed. He said, there's none like it. He gives it for his, his own protection. And the, the sword had been stored there in the tabernacle. But something more interesting to the story and more the focus of Jesus is that he also gave David, this priest also gave David the ceremonial bread, which was to be kept in the presence of the Lord until the time came for the priest to eat it. Now, this bread was absolutely according to the law of God, what Moses wrote. It was it was holy and the law stated that it was only to be eaten by the consecrated priests only. And yet this this priest on duty clearly recognizes that David was God's anointed and that he was in desperate need. 
and that the provisions were needed for him to be able to fulfill his mission. And David, on the basis of those things, would not be denied by this priest the things that he needed, including consecrated bread. Now, you may be wrestling with that. Well, that is a violation of law. How could Jesus seem to endorse that? Here's the deal. What did we say a few weeks ago? When you open the scriptures, you are looking for who? It doesn't matter what page. I heard one Jesus. But for the rest of you all, the answer was Jesus. Write that down in your notes. So you're looking for Jesus in the scriptures. And here's the deal. Um, this isn't just a random story about, about you know some priest giving David bread that he shouldn't have had. In the larger prophetic sense that the Pharisees and their legalism could never understand. Keep that in mind. Legalism never expands your understanding of Scripture. It limits it. It narrows it. It puts it in a tiny little box. But in this larger prophetic sense, that bread in the tabernacle represented... Christ himself. I am the bread that comes down from heaven, he said. Christ in the flesh was infinitely much more holy than the bread in the tabernacle that merely represented him. And this bread was taken from its place before the altar and given to men who were unworthy, who were unconsecrated, And so, likewise, Christ would be given to those who were not worthy of his wounds and of his blood. See, the high priest had made a determination that he would share with the men who relied on him and who came asking. And this great, this one that the book of Hebrews calls our great high priest, Jesus himself, will not withhold grace from those who depend on him and those who come asking. He says, feast on me. Now Christ beautifully expresses the Sabbath as in the picture of an outpouring of grace. He says this, and I love these words. These guys who were insisting on rules and calculations and making sure that everybody is getting, their moral behavior is getting taxed constantly. They hated tax collectors, but that's all they were, were moral tax collectors. They just kind of kept a list of everybody's, uh, you know, moral input and output. And, and, and Jesus says this powerful statement of grace. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. See, the Pharisees perverted God's gift of the Sabbath into an obligation of meticulous rule-keeping. They knew the command of God by heart, but they never knew the heart of God behind the command. They didn't know anything about that. See, the Sabbath was commanded by God because He knows, nobody deny this, that every single one of us are fretful little creatures. Amen? We are just, you know, crazy. We're we're given to worry. We're given to labor. We're given to fear. And, and, And we're rarely given to peace or rest or confidence because we're so internally, spiritually, deep down in our soul, scarred from the fall. So what Jesus did at Mount Sinai with Moses and the and the children of Israel, as he commanded us all to stop, to cease, to call an end to our toil and our anxiety, and to rest our bodies and our minds, and to meditate, to set aside time to meditate on his goodness and his provision. Now, when the Pharisees say, don't walk more than 2,000 miles, don't untie knots, don't move lamps, does that sound like freedom to you? Does it? But when Jesus, by command, provides rest for your bodies and minds and gives you an opportunity to just sit and think about his goodness, does that sound like freedom? Same law. The Pharisees said, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Jesus says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But I don't think the two of them were saying the same thing, do you? 
The Sabbath day constitutes the benefits package for the people of God. You go get a new job, and they tell you what you're going to do, and you want to get real quick to how much am I getting paid, how many vacation days, how many sick days, that sort of thing. The, 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 the Sabbath is God's way to tell you that he is always going to make provision for you. The Sabbath shows just how much God loves and cares for His creation. He provides by command. Think about the power of that. He doesn't recommend to you rest. He doesn't suggest to you rest. He commands rest to you. He provides it. And just like the bread in the tabernacle, the Sabbath day also finds its perfect fulfillment, not in a day off from labor, but in the eternal rest of our souls that's provided by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. But Jesus has one more thing to say to these joy-destroying legalists. He says, oh, and by the way, guys, in case you're missing what all this means, you Pharisees, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Man. And they thought that forgiving others' sins was a big statement. This was huge. Think about the implications of what Jesus said. So the Sabbath day as a command was given by God to his people on Sinai. So given by who? It's given by God. So for Jesus to call himself the Lord of the Sabbath was Jesus once again. It was the equivalent of Jesus saying what? I am God. And do you think the Pharisees missed the implication of that? Not at all. It's true that the Sabbath was given by command at Sinai, but the consecration, this gets so much deeper, the consecration of the Sabbath goes all the way back to the very first week of creation. Genesis 2-3 says, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work, that he had done in creation. We don't hear about not committing adultery in the garden. We don't hear about you know not lying or stealing or idolatry in the garden. What we do hear is that God is a rest-providing God. And listen, that's not, that's not speaking to the nap time you're going to have this afternoon. It's talking about the rest for our sinful souls that comes through the salvation of Jesus. Okay. It's, it's pop quiz time. Who is the Lord of the Sabbath? Man, you guys really aren't listening because I heard about four of you. Who is the Lord of the Sabbath? That's a little better. So if Jesus, by saying he is the Lord of the Sabbath, means that he is God who gave and can alter the command of the Sabbath, he is also driving home the point that, that implies that he is the creator who is the one who rested on the first Sabbath. Not only God at Sinai, but God in the garden. He is the creator. So, second pop quiz, or or this isn't really a pop quiz, it's just a self-diagnosis tool. If you ever want to know, if you ever look in the mirror and say, I wonder if I'm a legalist. I'm going to give you a surefire way to know. Anybody want to know? You're like, no, I don't want to know. Here's how you know. If you ever want to know with irrefutable evidence that you are a legalist, pay careful attention to your reaction when someone challenges your cherished belief system. You will know in a heartbeat if you are, in fact, a legalist. The Lord of the Sabbath, because of this, had prepared an object lesson for these so-called law experts, and he was going to carry it out, this object lesson, on their own turf. So Jesus again enters the synagogue on the Sabbath. The Bible tells us this was his custom. He was a law keeper, so he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And it just so happens, just so happens by the providence of God, that there was a man in attendance, and he has what the Bible terms a withered hand. His condition could have been the result of a previous injury. It could have been uh, some sort of neurological disorder that caused his hand not to function. We have no idea. But what we do know is that the man had no normal use of his hand. And this, of course, anybody that has two hands and can use them would know would be a major, major inconvenience. 
And while it's a major inconvenience, this is a really important point, having a withered hand is not life-threatening. And that's important. Because if, it, if his condition had been potentially fatal, the rabbis, the scribes, the Pharisees would have allowed for him on the Sabbath to seek healing. If he was, if he was at death's door, they would have said, fine, of course, you can, you can seek healing. But for people with non-life-threatening ailments, the patient had to come back on another day that wasn't so holy. Because it would be just terrible to insult God by risking doing works of healing on the Sabbath day. I mean, heaven forbid. <laughs> But Jesus, (laughs) because of the kerfuffle at breakfast in the grain fields, every eye of every Pharisee in this packed synagogue is laser focused on Jesus. They see the guy standing there with the withered hand. They see this guy with a reputation for being a healer standing here and they go, how's this going to play out? Is he going to heal him right here in the synagogue on the Sabbath day? Will he further seal his status as a lawbreaker? So as if on cue, Jesus stands in the synagogue and he says to the man, Hey, come here. The guy walks over there standing before Jesus. See, the synagogue didn't function like we function in a modern-day Christian church. The, the Christian message with the gospel is all about proclamation. But in the synagogue, it didn't function like that. There was more of a give-and-take atmosphere where people were encouraged to come because of the mission of the Pharisees to ask questions, uh, where they could learn from these well-educated, highly respected guys, these Pharisees. Uh, they were the local religious authorities. And so Jesus calls their bluff, having this man stand right in front of him, and he boldly asks a question. He wants They're, they're experts. They, they know everything about the law. So he wants to see what they would say to his question. And he asks the question in order to shed light on their twisted view of God's intention for the Sabbath. Question simple. He said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? Hmm. Seems like a simple question to me. But they were silent, the Bible tells us. These, ed- these experts knows everything about the law. They were absolutely dumbstruck before Jesus. Completely dumbstruck. The answer should have been obvious. See, the foundation of not only the Sabbath, but of all of God's holy commandments should be human flourishing. The greatest and second greatest commandments, according to Jesus, should confirm this. He said, first, the the first greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You You know what that results in? It results in my flourishing. It might result in my persecution and everything, but man, I have, I have fellowship with the eternal God. That's, that's called flourishing, folks. But it also says that the second commandment is to love our neighbors as myself. If I came to the synagogue with a withered hand, I, I'm pretty into myself. I would want to get that sucker healed, right? And so the, the Pharisees just didn't get this. So in the face of their silence, in the and in their cowardice, because that's exactly what it was, to own up to the flaws of their own hermeneutics, their ways of interpreting Scripture, and, and the legal schemes that they, that they maintained in the presence of the Creator, in the presence of the lawgiver. Uh, you know, the Lord of the Sabbath speaks up. Or actually, He looks around, and the Bible says, get this, don't miss this tiny detail in Mark. He looked around at them. Jesus has just asked this question. He looked around with them in the face of their silence with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. Now, Jesus almost simultaneously has two distinct reactions. The first reaction is that he looks around them with anger. Now, I, 
he, you know, you may be tempted to think that he'd be like you or I, and you know, trying to get this point across to the to the uh, the Pharisees about how they're not interpreting the Sabbath right, and and he's just thinking, ah, oh, you guys are a bunch of knuckleheads. But that is not what the Greek is telling us. This this anger is the Greek word orge, and orge. It means so much more than just simple annoyance. You know, ah, oh, so irritated at you. See, it's, it actually means, and this may make you uncomfortable, but it actually means fury. Jesus looked around at them with fury. It means, uh, it's usually translated in the, in the New Testament as wrath. And it's the same kind of wrath that precedes the day of the Lord, when all the wicked are judged. Now, why would Jesus react to their religious hypocrisy with wrathful fury? Please pay attention to this. Because in the hardness of their hearts, they weren't just oppressing people, they were misrepresenting God. See, they replaced God's ordinances for human restoration and human refreshment with laborious record-keeping. 1,997 steps, 1,998 steps, 1,999... Stop! No one in that day, I venture to say, rested on the Sabbath. No one did. What'd they do? They calculated. They trembled. Jesus will later say... About the Pharisees in Matthew 23, he'll say, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. And and it's this hypocrisy and misrepresentation that stirs the holy wrath of Jesus up. But that wasn't all. It wasn't just anger. It wasn't fury or wrath. Secondly, Jesus was grieved at the hardness of their heart. Man, grief is not a pleasant heart response, but when you understand what's being said here, this is very, very hopeful. Let's get real honest for a second. If you are here and you have ever been a hypocrite, if you've ever been a Pharisee, and you have more times than any of us could ever calculate. We've been meaning to talk to you about that. Just kidding. If you have been, or presently are, a hypocrite and a Pharisee, there is more to Jesus' response to you than just raw anger. He also grieves over the sin of sinners because he desires that they come to the freedom that comes with repentance See, Jesus' wrath, sometimes people get so nervous to talk about Jesus' wrath. Jesus' wrath is never out of control rage like you and I have been known to exhibit at different times in our life. See, he gets angry because he's jealous for his glory, because he knows that his glory is exactly what you need. And he doesn't ever want the truth of himself to be concealed by our duplicity and our falseness. But even when we are objects of his wrath, even then his heart turns towards sinners like us, simultaneously moved to grief and compassion over our weaknesses, our frailty, our fallenness. His anger alone would in a moment consume us, but his tenderness towards us gives us hope. Amen? So here's the man standing before him, And he sees a demonstration of the tenderness and the compassion of Jesus. He saw in the moment of time what the Sabbath was meant for. A rest that the tidy rule keeping of the fastidious Pharisees could never hope to grant. Mark 3.5 says that Jesus looked at him and said, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. A man who had no rest because he had a hand that wouldn't function. Jesus gave him rest. A man who was broken. Jesus gave him salvation with one word. That's the Sabbath. 
And this story finishes with a great depiction of the contrast between the dark, stony, cold heart of the legalist with the warm and inviting, burden-relieving heart of Christ. After just healing this man, Mark tells us the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. See, the Herodians were were not friends. They were not allies of the Pharisees. The Herodians were supporters of King Herod, and therefore they were sympathizers with the Romans. And so with the Pharisees, however, because one infinitely holy, one not sectarian like they were, one infinitely holy was standing before them. The Pharisees and the Herodians found a common enemy in Jesus, even this early in his ministry. We've barely gotten started even in the book of Mark, and they've already found them as an enemy. Christ had asked, if you'll recall, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? He just showed what he was about. He did good to the man. He saved his life. And immediately when he said that, these guys who claimed to revere the Sabbath so much went out and they plotted to do harm and to kill. They knew nothing about God. They knew nothing of his Sabbath. And this is the defining characteristic of legalism. Legalists talk religious all the time. But at the very root, they know nothing of the things of which they speak. Because their lives have never been transformed by grace. They're just rule keepers and rule demanders. And may God save every single one of us from the curse of legalism. May he expose it in our heart and cause us to be able to lay down our uh, our insistence on having our way and, and uh, imposing our interpretation of the rules on others and, and, um, and, and our, uh, you know, our uh, additions to the law. Let, let us just forsake all those things and commit ourselves to the Sabbath to do good, to save lives. And we do that through the proclamation of the gospel of the, of the Lord of the Sabbath. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love and thank you that you have not added burden upon burden to us like the Pharisees. But Lord, you, you heal us. You give us eternal rest. You feed us with the bread of heaven. You are our Sabbath rest. It's not about me taking a long nap on a Sunday, Lord. It's about me resting from the works of my own self-righteousness to be made holy by you, Lord, and your work. And so I thank you for that. Lord, will you just search our hearts and convict us of the places where we have imposed legalistic interpretations of your word on others, or where we are under the oppression of the legalistic interpretations of someone else. And Lord, set us free to trust you, to cling to you, to rely on you, to depend on you, and to know the beauty of true faith. In Jesus' name, amen. If I could have our communion helpers to join me, um, we're going to receive uh, from the Lord's table today. Um, and this is the, the thing I would simply tell you. You are not worthy of your own to be here. That's good news, right? But the great high priest is offering the bread from the altar to you because you need it. And so just receive from his hands this morning. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we invite you to join us. Um, if you are not, um, please, I, I plead this every week, come talk to me, but don't rush up here. The Bible says that in, in eating this 
bread and taking this cup unworthily, you actually eat and drink condemnation to yourself. It's a serious warning because we want you to know what this means. We want you to respond in faith um, uh, in Jesus uh, that he is everything that I described this morning and so much more. But if you are a believer, I want to invite you to come, just receive the elements, and we'll take them together when you get back to your seat. Paul writes to the, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when his betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now let's offer a prayer of thanks. Lord, we stand before you, your worshipers, and we thank you for what you have done. We thank you for freeing us from the burden of the law. We thank you for causing us to... Um, receive our rest and our refreshment from you, Lord God, that our souls are no longer under the, the wearying burden of sin, but we have been set free to life, abundant life, eternal life, and eternal rest in you. And for this, we thank you. Lord, we want to lift up this morning little Mavericks as he is still recovering. Lord, we pray that you would speed his recovery. God, we pray that you would just heal his body completely. And Lord, just let this be part of his testimony as he grows, that in his earliest days that you heard the prayers of the people of God and healed his body. And Lord, we will be quick to give you praise and to worship you and give you thanks for your healing of, of little mavericks. And so we thank you for this and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, and I want to pronounce a benediction to you. And there's no more appropriate for the message that we've had this morning. Hebrews 4, 9, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.